Galatians 3, and I'll start reading at verse 26 and read through chapter 4, verse 7. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is master of all, but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the Father. Even so, we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the truth that is present in your word, this reality And we pray, Lord, that you would open our minds up to understand this and fire our imaginations to truly uh, revel in the truth of it, to experience uh, this reality in ways that it is difficult to do. And so we pray, Lord, that you would send your Holy Spirit uh, to this end and for this purpose. We give you thanks in Christ and his finished work. Amen. This text starts, it's long, it's 11 verses that I've read, but it really is all knit together. There are a lot of different thoughts in it, and yet it keeps coming back to this whole concept of us being sons of God through faith in Christ. And so that's what we begin with in verse 26, and that's what we finish with in verse 7. And so I wanted to have this all be one thing, but yet I'll draw out the pieces of it that are kind of unique. Uh, First, it's obvious from this that our sonship and daughtership it's implied, uh, comes to us, and I'm afraid this is not totally hanging on, but our sonship and daughtership comes to us not through blood, but through faith. And so uh, we have been adopted into God's family. Jesus is God's only begotten son. God the Father has one son begotten and that is Jesus. All the rest of us are adopted in. And so we are all alike in that regard. None of us are in any way superior to another. Uh, It doesn't matter what our role is. When I was young, not too young, I was maybe 11 or 12, 13, I forget, but uh, there was a period of time where we knew this one family fairly closely. And I came to understand that they had, they had several children. I think they had three sons and a daughter. And so their oldest son and then their third son and their daughter were all natural to them. They were their own children. But their, their middle son was adopted. And even before I learned he was adopted, I saw that he was treated like a servant in the house. We would go and we would have a meal with them or I would visit with them. And he did everything. I mean, he would set the table. He would clear the table. He would bring the food. The other, the daughter and the, and the younger son, the older son by that time was grown and away, but 
he did everything, and it seemed normal in their home for this to be the case. And so when I learned that he was adopted, it kind of connected with me. Oh, that's why people adopt, you know? They adopt servants into their home. (laughs) But uh, I felt so bad for him because I don't think anybody really perceived what was going on. Uh, It appears to be just so much a pattern of throughout him growing up that they took advantage of him in this way. And yet this form of discrimination is so insidious, so evil. Uh, Who can read Cinderella or any of these fairy tales that show how stepbrothers or sisters are mistreated and not see the injustice of it? So when we talk about all of us being adopted into God's family, it is not to be adopted in this fashion, to be abused and used and taken advantage of. As a matter of fact, it's the opposite. Our natural-born brother has borne the brunt of a lot of that on our behalf. So now we are baptized into Christ, it says. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Now in verses 26 and 7, let me read them again. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So I ask you, what is being spoken of here? As many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Is this water baptism that's being spoken of? If you think this is water baptism, this then could be a logical argument for you to believe that baptism saves you, that water baptism is actually what sets you apart and actually brings the Holy Spirit's regeneration upon you into your life. And yet that's not what's being spoken of here. Let me read 1 Peter 3.21. I think this is more what is being spoken of. 1 Peter 3.21 reads, There is also an antitype which now saves us, baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the re- resurrection of Jesus Christ. So Paul and here Peter, they use the term baptism in a way that is much broader than we now might be tempted to think of baptism. Paul, for him in this text, it was synonymous with regeneration. Baptism is the symbol of us being regenerate into God. And so at times, the apostles, the writers of the Bible, actually use it. That's why it is popular in our, in our culture, in our times, throughout the history of the Christian church, that some misappropriate that term. And they then equate salvation with water baptism. And yet that's not, is, that's not what is being said here. So now, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Putting on Christ. How, did, how exactly do you do that? How do you put on another person? It, it really is, in, in a literal form, nonsensical. We don't put on other people. If we're putting them on, that means we're lying to them, right? That means we're pretending before them. But that's not what this is meaning. This means put on Christ. Let me read another text to you. Romans and Galatians parallel in so many ways. You can't really study Galatians without also at the same time being kind of almost uh, encouraged to study, to study Romans at the same time. If you don't, it's really to your detriment. Let me read Romans 13, verses 11 to 14. And do this, knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore... Let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. 
Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. Twice put on is referred to here. In verse 12, let us put on the armor of light. And so here we're speaking of something that covers our bodies, right? Armor. Put on the armor of light. And then in verse 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And then here in Galatians, we're told to put on Christ. And so Romans is really the expanded form of exactly what Paul is saying here in Galatians. Put on the armor of light. That's what God commands us to do. Put on the armor of light, and that armor is Christ. It's all that he did for us. It's all that he lived for. Now, when we put on something, like let's consider it clothing. Armor, I would imagine, is uncomfortable. Armor of light sounds really cool. But uh, armor in and of itself is probably uncomfortable. Always has been on this earth. But imagine just clothing, putting on clothing. When we put on new clothing, which is what we're talking about here, put on the new, you're, st- you're to put off the old, put on the new. But now we're excited, well, I don't know many guys that are excited about putting on new clothes, honestly. I hate shopping for clothes. Some men like shopping for clothes, but I'm not one of them. I don't think my boys, well, maybe Zaya does. But uh, <laughs> he likes to look good. Uh, but so when we put on our new clothes, it really isn't the same as looking at them in the store and putting them on. They're two different things. It's fun shopping sometimes. Uh, I can't say that I like shopping for clothes. I like shopping for other stuff. But, but my, uh, the, the ladies of our family spent six hours yesterday shopping for, for various things for our upcoming uh, uh, wedding uh, uh, anniversary celebration. And so I know shopping can be fun. But when we put on new clothes, they're different. And we all have clothes that we would much rather be in, comfortable clothes, clothes we've had for a while, the old clothes that are worn in, that just feel so comfortable to put on. And so putting on the new clothes is something that you have to get accustomed to. You have to do it for the sake of doing it and getting used to the new clothes. We will always put on our old clothes. Some people, I mean, they have old t-shirts that are so comfortable, so soft, but yet they're falling off their bodies. They love them so much that they've worn them and washed them so much, but they just can't bear the thought of throwing them out. Not just that they have sentimental value, it's that they're so comfortable, they really love them. And yet, in many ways, that is indicative of us before we came to Christ. There are things that we were accustomed to that we must grow unaccustomed to, and we don't like it. We don't want to grow unaccustomed to those things. They're part of us. I was talking with one of the men recently about how in addition to sanctifying our lives, an aspect of our sanctification is that we have to sanctify our memories. I can look back on sinful experiences and reflect on at the time I enjoyed them. At the time they identified me, they typified me. I wasn't a Christian even for many of them. But in my youth, and I think what you'll find, young people, is that so much of what you experience in your youth is so memorable. Once you're an adult, the decades just flash by. I can't remember them. But I can still remember so much from my teenage years. And I was an unbeliever during all that time. And so I can still have memories that make me feel good 
as I'm singing Highway to Hell or whatever it is that I was doing at the time. So you really do have to sanctify that. You have to put that to death. You have to put that under the blood of Christ. We have to train ourselves to do this because it doesn't come naturally. Paul knew what he was saying when he says, you have to put off and put on, put off and put on. It's work. It is something that involves you. So now, in verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Uh, This is a verse that is so abused and misused in our culture, in our time. I am not even going to get into all the details in which this verse is misapplied, but what I will share with you is the way that it is intended here by Paul to be applied. And then if you see this referenced in especially fluff books from one of the bookstores, uh, you will see that it's often misapplied. Now, the list of contrast here is brief. Neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Obviously, the intention of this verse is the oneness, the oneness of being in Christ. What I've already talked to you about, how we're all adopted, we're all essentially in the same position before God. This rejects a caste system in Christianity. There is no caste system in Christianity. I don't care who you are. Seminary professors, latrine cleaners, they are the same before God. God is no respecter of persons. And I believe, and I've mentioned this to one of the men recently too, I believe that there will be many seminary professors that are disappointed to hear that when they get to heaven. Because I have met such humble men of God who have written great books. But I have also met such pompous, arrogant Christian men who have uh, long degrees and have read a lot of books or written a lot of books. They will be humbled when they get to heaven, if not before. Now, imagine that all the people of Omaha, there are 400,000 some people, but imagine that you were some statistical organization that was responsible for slicing and dicing everybody in Omaha. Every conceivable characteristic. What are they? I mean, it's just amazing to think about it. You know, there are things such as height and weight. There are things such as age, hair length, uh, your skill at doing any thing you can name, uh, where you live, uh, but what you do, uh, how happy you are, how sad you are. You can imagine that this list could be endless. It's, It's infinite. And yet imagine that you could do that. Imagine that you could know all of this as God does and not care. It's statistical information that means nothing to God. And so he does not use such things to distinguish anything. There is a, a theory, and some of us know it as this Kevin Bacon game. There is this theory that no person on earth is separated from no other person on earth by more than six degrees of separation. And this has actually been around for about 80 years. I mean, people have written mathematical papers on this, and then they have created games, such as that Kevin Bacon game back in like 1990 or 91. Kevin Bacon, even using the popularity from that about three years ago, formed a a nonprofit organization to incorporate many of the uh, charities that that Hollywood stars have built over the years, and it is kind of like a clearinghouse for that to educate everybody on what different stars are interested in supporting, showing that charities are in many ways connected. But uh, anyway, these six degrees of separation mean that there is no one on earth. And the theory actually kind of bears out to a great extent. I mean, I'm sure we can find flaws in it. And of course, the key is this. 
finding those people. I mean, it, you can't find those people. We can find examples that track us through that, but it's really hard to find such people. You don't know what specific five or six people connect you to this other person who lives over in Turkey in the mountains of Mount Ararat. You don't know them, but it can be learned. It's conceivable if we could do this type of study to figure that type of thing out. But with God, there's one degree of separation. It's you, God. Whether you're the seminary professor, whether you're the president of the United States, whether you're a latrine digger in in some uh, third world country, there's only one degree of separation between you and God. And that's the way God wants it. That's in part why this Roman Catholic thing that undermines the fact that Christ is our mediator between us and God. And of course, Jesus is God. And so therefore, that's why there's only the one degree. But yet, that's why it's so hideous and, and evil that they try to insert mediators other than Jesus between us and God to try to say these people in some way lord your relationship over you to God. That is not true. There is only one thing that God cares about. Here we talked about, you know, neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female. But what is the one thing that you could insert in there that essentially discriminates all life on earth? There are those that have bowed the knee to Christ on this earth. There are those that have not bowed the knee to Christ on this earth. That's it. That is God's discriminator. He doesn't care about any of the other things that you could potentially come up with. That's it. And that's why in our times, it's so sad to see much of the Christian church embracing something other than Christ to draw us close to God the Father. It just won't work. None of it matters. Christ is central to all of Scripture, all of our experience. And so it is only our knowing Christ and Christ knowing us and having bled and died for us that separates us from those that are lost, the saved and the lost. Now let's talk a little bit, though, about Paul's specific examples here because he specifically meant a few things. In teaching these people in Galatia about this, he was specifically hammering on these, neither Jew nor Greek. Your nationality doesn't matter to God. The Jews had been considered special for so long that it was so hard for them to undo that specialness. But Paul is saying, get over it. You are not special to God. So now, their nationality, therefore. So we separate Jew and Greek, but then you can just list a whole bunch of nationalities. Uh, most people think they're special. If you were to ask people if they're special, yes, I'm special. Yeah, I'm in the top 50% of special people. Everybody is. Neither slave nor free. And so there you can insert any societal class distinctions you want. The Dalits in India from the cream of the crop in India, the people that are like at, the, at just one step short of nirvana, they'll enter that with their next death. Uh, all of this, neither slave nor free. Every one of those distinctions, nothing, mean nothing. And so in their status, of course, slaves and free were huge. I mean, we even see it with Paul writing the honor that he is accorded when he is deemed a Roman citizen. So he's both a Roman, special nationality, and free, special nationality. I mean, even being a Roman slave was, was incredible. But here he was, a Roman free man, neither male nor female. So here is our sexual role, our sexuality. And so at that time, Jewish men would say this, I thank God that I'm not born a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. So what made a Jewish man content, these type of arrogant men, 
was that they were born a Jew, they were born a Jewish man, and they were separated, therefore, from the unwashed masses of people that they looked down upon. And is this what God intended his Jewish men to behave like, to act like, to think like? No, of course not. Not at all. So neither should we. Now, Paul's contrasts about these, we can put them into American terms. For instance, neither Jew nor Greek, neither Mexican nor American, neither Canadian nor American, neither African nor American. Again, these are distinctions that might make sense on this earth to distinguish people by, but in terms of God and our relationship with him, meaningless, absolutely meaningless. White collar or blue collar, meaningless. It doesn't matter. And, and we find it so easy at times to look down upon people for what they do on this earth. But God doesn't. I mean, he tells us very clearly that he doesn't. For him, it's all about your relationship with God through Christ. And neither uh, male nor female, this could be husband, wife, breadwinner, homemaker. Again, in our culture, there are so many ways in which women are discriminated against, especially women who choose to be in the home. God doesn't discriminate against women in the home. God loves the fact that they're abiding by his rule, by uh, uh, adhering to his word, not fighting against that which he has set in place. And I'm not saying that women can't work outside the home, but I'm saying that, that being a homemaker is a laudable goal. Being a woman who's dedicated to raising her children in her home is honorable, certainly not dishonorable, as our culture would have us to believe. So now, Josephus said this, and he's this Jewish historian. He said, the woman, so says the law, is inferior in all things to man. So he's misappropriating the law in this regard. Now, maybe, maybe he's quoting that which was addended to the law, that which the Jews had added over the previous three, four, five, six hundred years, and he could have been. But now, differences do exist, and they're real. And that's what I was going to tell you about this one verse, neither, neither, neither. Some people try to obliterate, therefore, all distinctions on earth. And so by doing that, they run roughshod over all the rest of Scripture that does discriminate, differentiate between men and women. And when I say discriminate, I obviously don't mean a bad way. I just mean distinguish. There are roles on the earth, and we must, we must obey God in our adherence to those roles. Slaves and masters still exist. This text is often misappropriated by feminists to say that C, 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 no difference between men and women. Well, then, what you're saying is there's no difference between slave and master either. In other words, we're all just this flat organization. We're an organization that has absolutely no hierarchy. So, therefore, slave and free, that's boss and employee. So, therefore, this is anathema to God. You can't have that. It's absurd. I mean, Scripture is full of examples of where that is the case. That is natural. It is natural to have a hierarchy, and yet that is what slave and master talks to. It talks to this hierarchy that we have put in place in patterning it after God, how he has designed it. So it is true, though, that all of our circumstances differ. We all have one degree separation from God. That's true. And yet each of us has different challenges that are only experienced by us, and now, sure, you might have circumstances that are common to you and common to anyone else in this room. You might share 80% of the same challenges, but yet you're totally different. You're totally unique. And so you will experience those challenges in entirely different ways. So you are commanded by God to become content in these situations with these challenges. 
can you? You can't in and of yourself. You must rely upon God for contentment. Verse 28b, the second part says, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And that's why I told you that's the whole premise behind that verse. That's that oneness. Let me share with you a story from my own experience. Now, I was a non-Christian at the time. I became a Christian about a year later, maybe six months later. But while I was in the service, I was stationed uh, down at Millington Naval Air Station near Memphis. I had received a meritorious promotion out of boot camp because I'd scored highest on the rifle range for my platoon. And so I got to be a PFC. Now, there are a few people that got that, but probably less than 3% maybe across all of the Marine Corps. So when I got to my next duty station, school, I was already a PFC. I was not a private. Uh, Privates had no stripes on their arm. A PFC had one. So I I was immediately uh, perceived as a leader then in terms of any assignments that I got. And boy, was it nice. There was a role in our barracks where you had to do, no one from outside your barracks was ever allowed to get past the front desk. All the barracks had front desks and there was always a a guard sitting there on duty and they rotated through all of us. So you might get duty at two to four in the morning. Now at two to four in the morning, that desk is assigned a person to sit at the desk and a runner. Two to four in the morning, the runner has nothing to do. They They just sit there with the person who's on duty. But I tell you, Friday night at 6 p.m., if you get the 6 to 8 p.m. on a Friday night, The runner has a lot to do because there were no phones in this barrack system. It was all entirely, I mean, you had electric, but you had no communications device whatsoever, no intercom system, no nothing. So here I was, a PSC and then eventually a Lance Corporal in E3. And yet, just before becoming a Lance Corporal, all of us were PSCs. So there was no longer any distinction. I was not special anymore like I had been, that I had grown so accustomed to being special. And I got assigned runner duty on a Friday night from 6 to 8 p.m. And I was wearing myself out, running up and down those stairs. I'd get down there, and there'd be two people waiting for people. And, and I'd have to run up to the third floor, run up to the fourth floor, tell these guys that what's-his-name was here to see you, and run back down. And so I was just getting worn out. And, and I didn't like the guy that was at the guard desk. I didn't feel he was treating me with respect. So after about an hour of this, I was so outraged that I had been humbled in this way that I took him to task for the way he was treating me. You're not treating me with respect. I mean, I, I, I was ready to hit him, honestly. I mean, I, I thought I was a pretty calm person. But I was placed in a position where I ha- was humbled, especially relative to how I'd experienced the previous six or eight months at that school. And I didn't like it. I didn't want it. I wasn't content at all. And so I threatened that guy. I mean, he was, he was my size, maybe even bigger, but I was so angry and he, it shocked him. He was just like, wow, what on earth? And so uh, I just share that because that, now I was an unbeliever at the time, but I'm telling you right now that I could have easily been a believer for three years and the doubt it would have made a difference. I was so angry, so, uh, so short of being treated in the way that I felt I should be treated. And doesn't that go for all of us in specific circumstances? All of us can think through times in which we have been taken advantage of, not treated with respect, not treated certainly as we want to be, and we get angry. We want to fight somebody in that instance. So now, I believe God gives us all of these different circumstances. He makes us all incredibly unique 
such that he can take us through this humbling experience one person at a time, one personality at a time. He drags you through all of these humbling experiences to test your character, to make you grow, to make you be sanctified. You don't want to be, I don't want to be, but you are going to be. God will make sure that it happens. You are all one in Christ Jesus. You are all unique. A few years ago, we watched the movie Monsters and Aliens. Has anybody seen that movie, Monsters and Aliens? And so this evil alien is named Galaxar. And how he is intending to take over the earth, that these earth monsters actually save the earth from these aliens. But he's stamping out of this big machine 100 at a time of himself. And so there are all these Galaxar clones because, of course, he's the best, highest creature in the whole universe. So who would want to make anything inferior to yourself if you're going to make an army? Make a whole bunch more of yourself. So see, that, I remember sharing the gospel with, and this, this uh, concept of being renewed in the image of Christ. I remember sharing it with a non-Christian when I was young, and they were appalled. They really thought that I was wanting to become this clone-like person. And I I told her, I said, well, you know, in a sense, it's true. I mean, we have this model, but yet we're so far from that model, I don't even have the hope of getting close to being like Christ, to being thought a clone of Christ. And we all start from these different areas, but yes, we are pursuing a goal. The goal is the same. Christ's perfection is the same for every one of us, but we all start at an entirely different spot. Let me share with you a picture. Uh, These, I think, are incredible. I don't know, you've probably all seen these. But uh, my wife bought me a book. I couldn't find it. I found this online. But uh, this is a picture. This is the Mona Lisa. I zoom in on her face. But when you zoom in on this, each thing is a little picture, this little square picture. There are on here probably, I don't know, probably at least two or 240 pictures, 300 pictures. And so I zoomed in on her left eye. And it's just amazing the variety. There's like a woman's face here and a man's face over there. There's a horse in the grass. There are limes. There's a tennis racket. Uh, It's just a brick wall. It's amazing. I mean, how did people devise this? It it astounds me. But yet, this this is us in God's family. And we all, if you zoom in close enough, we all have a role to play. We all have an, an extremely unique identity. But together, he is making this mosaic that makes sense, most likely only to him. I mean, this we can all see, but only God can see the mass of humanity that make up his church. So we must accept our position, and yet we must also, I think, revel in it. We are made unique. That should fill us with joy, fill us with hope for the future. The next verse, verse 29, says, If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. I covered this a few weeks ago, but I'll just repeat it quickly. Uh, Being sons of God means we are sons of Abraham. Sons and daughters, again, applies. All sons of God are sons of Abraham, even the sons of God that came before Abraham. And why is that? What is that that makes the sons of Abraham all so unique in this regard, that we all have to pass through Abraham? It is because he is a son by faith. We are sons and daughters by faith. So we are sons and daughters cast in the mold of Abraham. That means we're included in the promise. Let me move to verse 1 in chapter 4. 
Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is master of all. The picture here is one of a child who doesn't yet know who they are, doesn't yet know how they relate to other people on this earth. So it's not necessarily a bad thing or a good thing. It's just the truth. When we're little, we don't know much. And so often, many of you are probably familiar with how, uh, like the white kids on plantations would grow up with the black kids, just playing. They're just friends. And yet at a point in time, they get to be like 9, 10, 11, 12, 13. They're, they're getting older. And then the parents start kind of teasing them apart. It's time for the white kids to learn that they're in the position of master and the black kids to learn that they're in the position of servant. And so that happens. Now the question, the reason I relate it to you is this. It's easy enough for imagine bad scenarios like that where we ourselves now are I, was, I, I happened upon a, uh, a race show yesterday. It was called the Freedom Riders, these white and blacks that mixed together on the buses in 1961 to go through the Deep South. And then the, the, the whites of the South were just incensed, and they would drag them off the bus and beat them up. But it's hard now to imagine the world that existed fi- only 50 years ago with that type of violence being perpetrated upon people even with the complicity of the police. I mean, the police were sometimes the ones that were doing this. They were so offended by what these people were doing. But now, some of us then are quick to look at the little, little spoiled rich kids, and they're misbehaving. As the kids learn distinctions, they learn that they're spoiled little kids and they become brats. But that's not always the case. If you're familiar with George MacDonald's fantasy books, uh, there's the princess and the goblin and the princess and Curdie. Uh, in this, there's a young woman who's a couple of years younger than Curdie. And she is, in the, in the book, it, it would seem that she's maybe 9, 10, 11 years old, something like that. But she is trying to be a good princess. She's learning through her father's tutelage how to be selfless, how to truly be a servant of the people and not a person that expects everything to be provided for them. So she's learning proper etiquette. She's learning how to, how to say things in a way that are fitting of a princess. So that is how God made the Jews. That's what they were to be. They were to be children of the king in the sense of modeling what it means to be a king's son or daughter. Selfless, sacrificial, loving, caring. Yet that isn't what happened with the Jews, is it? It kind of went awry. These people said, we are sons of Abraham. When Jesus would confront them with the reality of this, we are sons of Abraham. How dare, how dare you say this to us? Verse 2, it says this, we are these children under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the Father. So now the law we've talked about already as serving a function of keeping us in check until such a time as we were brought into maturity. And now we're hitting that again. The law is a tutor to train us and make us humble. We talked about how last week with faith, the prison door swings open and we are then free and we are entrusted with that freedom by God. Now, Christ came, and it was revealed then that there were no begotten sons of God. The Jews that really thought that of themselves were mistaken. Christ was the only begotten Son of God. These Jews, though special, had thought themselves too special, and they wanted to lord it over everybody else on earth. So they prided themselves as being sons of Abraham, but they weren't even sons. 
not only were they not begotten sons, they weren't even adopted sons. They, were, they had been disinherited, and they didn't know it. It wasn't until the destruction of Jerusalem that you really see the full force of this fall upon the world. God had intentionally cut them off because they had grown in this, this selfish, self-centered way instead of in the selfless, servant-like way that any true child of God should grow. As children, it says here in verse 3 that we were in bondage under the elements of the world. So what does it mean to be in bondage under the elements of the world? Have any of you read the, you know, uh, Phil had mentioned this several times. uh, What is it called? Lords of the Earth? Uh, Peace Child and Lords of the Earth? Uh, He had mentioned it so many times over the years that uh, my wife bought me for Father's Day last year a set of books, and Peace Child and Lords of the Earth were in there. So those are the first two books I read. I've got to read these. Phil has recommended them for, for all time. And I was embarrassed to tell him that I had never read them. But I did read them. And they are incredible, especially Peace Child. It just really shocks your world to think that these people were living in New Guinea just 40, 50 years ago in this fashion. But uh, just beholden to the, to the uh, chief, the chief who is also the religious leader. And they come up with all of these rules that in some ways are so brutal. And yet these rules come right from this chief. The chief has declared it, and so then it's so. And all these people live in fear of breaking one of these rules, and especially the women. The women so often committed suicide in that culture because the women were just so oppressed with these rules. The women couldn't do this, that, that, and the other thing. And some of the things were almost outside of their control. So they lived in constant fear of being killed. And the way that they would kill them was also just quite gruesome. But so when we talk about we were in bondage under the elements of the world, I believe that's what is being spoken of. Now, why is it that these chieftains would behave this way? Because they knew God existed. I mean, everybody knows God exists. It's only the, the uh, intelligentsia in wealthy nations that have learned so much that deny the existence of God. Everybody else just knows intuitively via common sense that God exists. But they don't know that God They don't know what that God is motivated by or motivated for. So these chieftains, the the leaders of the world, then make up stuff that typically benefit them. I've, I've got all the power. I can now make all these rules supposedly under the authority of God, but I just make it up. Now, they might mean well. They associate something with something, and then they declare a rule. Okay, now this is the way it's going to be from here on out. We have consciences, do we not? Some people harden them into sin, but yet as we have our consciences, what do they do? They either affirm us as being in the right, and we essentially experience uh, contentment when we act consistent with our consciences, or we experience condemnation when we act in ways that are inconsistent with our consciences. They can be corrupted, and often are, but God has built that into us. It is a self-regulator that he's put in all of us. In some people, it totally breaks through the evil of a society in which these individuals have been crushed and conformed by the evil of sin. But for most of us, the conscience is at work. And I want to tell you, though, that the consciences of believers and the consciences of unbelievers 
must function differently. So when you become a believer, I'm telling you that you must then alter your conscience. And let me share with you why. As an unbeliever, a, consci a conscience, like I said, is typically convicting you of sin. And what are you when you're convicted of sin? You're, you feel guilty. You need to somehow escape this guilt. And therefore, you're going to do whatever it is you can to escape the guilt. Now, one of the ways that's common is to minimize it. I don't want to feel guilty. Therefore, there's probably not much to feel guilty about on this. And so that is you diminishing your conscience. You're whacking it down, conforming it to your lowered expectations. And thus, you're doing that for your children. And your children will do that for their children. And they hammer that righteousness down that is attempting to cry out in them for justice. So you hammer that down long enough, and now you've got a lot of evil posterity coming out of you and your family. Because they're not going to just treat the people that you've treated like that, they're going to go farther, go farther, go farther. You're just driving it out of you. Now, that's one way of dealing with it. Another way of dealing it with it is as these pagan cultures have. Institute all kinds of rules. Kill people for the smallest infringement. You stepped on the holy ground. It, it's, it's a new moon. You should have known better. Whack, off with his head. Just all these rules that these, that these pagan chieftains put in place in order to keep the gods happy. Keeping the gods happy is a big thing. Now, that's an unbeliever. So your conscience is doing something good as an unbeliever. It's trying to keep you doing something good, but we can fight against it. And it's guilt that often drives us. As a believer, what do you do with guilt? As you sin, as a believer, as you continue to sin periodically, right? Periodically, like every day, what do you do with the guilt of sin? We can do as the unbelievers attempt to do. We can try to minimize it. Uh, he's a jerk anyway. He deserved to be treated like that, right? I mean, as a believer, we can easily act like that. But yet, that's not how God would have us to act. As children of the king, we must act differently. But so what do we do then? How do our consciences handle this guilt? You have to give it to God, right? That's why he sent Christ. Imagine that life is a race. Oh, and, and it, we sang of it. I, I, I couldn't believe this. We just sang this song, and this says, So spirit come, put strength in every stride, give grace for every hurdle, that we may run with faith to win the prize. And the illustration that I wanted to share was of hurdles. Life is like a race, and I want to describe it as a race in which hurdles are at work. Now, these hurdles are things that you are faced with. They're challenges. Every hurdle is a challenge. So now, you're running. You've got up a good stride. Ugh, there's another hurdle. You know, God's got them out there. You know, God's the one that placed the hurdles on your racetrack. You're not allowed to go outside of your lane. That's the other guy's hurdle, right? Everybody owns their own hurdles, and God's put them where he wants them. So he's put hurdles in your life expressly for you, only for you. And yet, you tire of jumping these hurdles. And you know why you tire of jumping these hurdles? Because you're relying upon your strength to jump these hurdles. Look at this. So spirit, come. Put strength in every stride. Give grace for every hurdle. This is exactly what I wanted to share, and it was in our... I didn't know this was in here. This is beautiful. It's God piecing it together. So 
as a Christian, you're running this race. God has placed the hurdles before you. What are you tempted to do when you come up to a hurdle and you don't think you can jump it? Stop. I, I, have you ever seen that happen? Have you ever seen people realize that they're not going to jump the hurdle and they stop? It's kind of instinctive. Now, some people just blow through the hurdles, knock it down, knock it down, knock it down. Sometimes some of us do that too. We're running in our own strength as fast as we can, and the hurdles are an annoyance. Who made this a hurdle race anyway? Blam, 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 knocking all the hurdles down. You know, it's like you watch a race like that, and you think, well, don't they deduct points for doing that, knocking hurdles down? I mean, some people are making all of them, and other people are boom, boom, boom. I would if I managed the hurdle race. You deducted. You didn't pass that hurdle. You shouldn't do that. But so God has placed all these hurdles out there, and they're all for us as individuals. And what do we do as we approach them? If we're doing it in our own strength, we are not going to clear it. God has guaranteed us that we need him. We need the grace of the Holy Spirit to help us overcome those hurdles. And so if you are not relying upon God for the hurdles in your life, you knock them over or you stop. You stop running. You stop racing. I don't want to do this anymore. Stop the planet. I want to get off. But that's not your call. You're in the race. You're going to finish the race. God is going to see to it. Now, I want to move on to verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. But when the fullness of time had come, what does this mean? He's talking about the coming of Christ. We don't know when that fullness of time came, but it did. There was one fine day when the Holy Spirit came down and told these, these shepherds in the field that there's been this child born. One fine day when John goes into the holy temple and he's struck dumb because he disbelieves the angel telling him he's gonna have a, his wife's going to have a baby. So one fine day this happened on this earth. And we don't know why. It was the fullness of time. There are ways that we describe it. God did it for various reasons. There was the use of the Greek language throughout the civilized world. There were the presence of Jewish synagogues throughout that whole same area. Network of Roman roads that connected them and allowed the apostles to travel. There was Roman law throughout all of that area that was common. These are given as reasons why God might have chosen for that time. But we don't know. It's in God's time. God sent forth his son. And so here we see the eternally begotten son. God sent forth his son. He sent him forth. So you see that he is one of, he's like him, he's of the same essence, he's God because he's his son. And you see that he is also in submission to his father. He sent him forth. And so this phrase highlights Christ's divinity. And then it goes on to say, born of a woman, born under the law. This highlights his humanity. This references his qualifications to be our propitiation, to take our place, because he had to be God in order to be big enough to have his sacrifice account for all of what he intended to have it sacrifice, and yet he had to be man to have it be something that could account for our sins as a man. The blood of bulls and goats had not done it. They were animals. had to be a man. I want to skip ahead to verse 7. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Look back to verse 2 for a second. 
Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is master of all, but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the father. Again, we're talking about a time appointed by the father. There was the fulfillment of time that I just spoke of when Christ came. But there is this time appointed by the father when as children of God, we come out from under the tutor. And when is that? Regeneration. Now, it's true that on this earth, if, if our, our children are regenerate at a very young age, which is our hope and prayer, and if they grow up in Christ, knowing Christ, never not knowing Christ, then they were regenerate from a young age. And we, as their parents, are on earth to lead them more and more into the Lord to direct their way. Yet, their freedom came when they were regenerated. That is exactly what it means here when it says, until the time appointed by the Father. Because remember what I said, there's only one degree of separation between any of us, and that goes for you children as well. I don't care if you're five or six years old, you are expected to know God. You are expected to speak directly to your Father in heaven, and you can. We all have that privilege. We all have that power and, and beautiful opportunity. Now, God sent the Holy Spirit onto this earth in the place of Christ. Christ was taken to heaven, but he said the comforter will come. And so that Holy Spirit is with us now. And that Holy Spirit dwells within each of his children. He dwells on this earth, restraining evil. We have been made joint heirs with Christ. He is our older brother. He died. He inherited the inheritance from his father when he was resurrected because he overcame that which his father had given him to overcome. And we are in our father's will as well. Christ, as being in his father's will, had something to accomplish. We do too. But we are told beforehand that Christ has accomplished it for us. So we continue on running the race of life, running these hurdles, knocking a lot over because we don't rely upon God as we should, yet we are heirs with Christ. We sit with Christ in the heavenlies even now, short of leaving this earth. So we are his children. And why did God do this? Why did God save us and then leave us here? In part, I believe it's to learn to appreciate what it is that he's given us. So at the appointed time when he saves you, what then is your earthly responsibility? To love him, to depend upon him, to grow in the Lord. Put on that armor of light that he has provided for each one of us in Christ. I want to read an extended portion from Colossians. It's beautiful. Now, if you're prone to go to sleep when you close your eyes, maybe you shouldn't. But if you can be aided in your focus upon what I'm reading by closing your eyes, then I encourage you to do so. But I'm going to read with, uh, to you starting from Colossians 2.13. And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance 
is of Christ. Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom all the body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using, according to the commandments and doctrines of men. These things, indeed, have an appearance of wisdom, in self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth, for you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them, but now... You yourselves are to put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language, out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man, who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all in all. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, and forgiving one another, if anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you must also do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. In 1 Corinthians, Paul wrote this, I has not seen nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. When Paul ended this portion of his writing in Galatians, he said, our spirit cries out, Abba, Father. And Abba is dad, dad. Our spirit cries this out to our Father in heaven. So Paul also switched to the singular. He often did this. He did it in nearly all of his letters. He is so overcome with his love of God and with being loved by God that he switches from kind of the theoretical where he's talking about you, you do this, you do this, to me, us, our. So see, salvation for Paul, and I talked about this once a few months ago, salvation for Paul is ultimately very, very personal. 
And when he shares these letters, he shares this personal aspect of it. So see, we, if we're saved, if we're children of God, we don't just wait to enjoy the presence of our Father when we get to heaven. We know that that awaits us, and that's what I just read from 1 Corinthians. Eye has not seen nor ear heard, but you are given a foretaste of that here on this earth. You are given this one degree of separation between you and God. What is the degree of separation between the unbeliever and God on this earth? It is infinite. The unbeliever has no way to come to God but through Christ. So we who know Christ, we who are joint heirs with Christ in the kingdom of heaven, we must avail ourselves of this now, here, on this earth. Enjoy it. Revel in it. Don't wait for heaven. Your relationship with God begins the moment you believe. And so I encourage you to seek a deeper relationship with God this day, this week. Don't wait. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Paul and the beauty. We know this beauty came through him from your hand. And so we thank you, Lord, for your word in which is described such beauty that is, it is hard for us to come to grips with it, hard for us to truly embrace it and experience it as we're running the race. And so it's important that we, for this moment, can look at ourselves as from the stands, just as the cloud of witnesses that have gone on before us are in the stands watching. And so we thank you, Father, for this opportunity to step outside once in a while to really see what it is that you are calling us to do and how desperately we need to rely upon you to get it done. We thank you now for your goodness, for your blessings, and most of all, for the sacrifice of your Son and for the presence of your Holy Spirit in our hearts and lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.